Hello and welcome to the Moral and Religious OCD podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. In this episode, I discuss with Deborah Burkett what is moral and religious OCD. She's a registered psychotherapist in private practice in Ontario, Canada. Her entirely virtual practice is called Sanctuary Psychotherapy. As a therapist, Deborah works at the intersection of religion and mental health, focusing particularly on religious trauma and religious and moral OCD. She is trauma certified and has a multifaceted background in religious and cultural studies, theology, and spiritual care. Deborah is deeply committed to combining evidence-based treatment with culturally and spiritually sensitive psychotherapy. Please know while there is every effort made to ensure the information provided in this podcast is accurate, it should not be assumed that everything said is completely objective. In other words, sometimes mistakes happen. What we say should not be taken as medical advice or therapy. It is meant only for educational purposes. Please consult with a qualified healthcare professional for your individual care. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email those to moralocd at gmail.com. Okay, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Deborah, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So this is episode one of the Moral and Religious OCD podcast. Um, so I'm very grateful for you to be the first guest. Um, I'll just say a bit about the podcast, um, just very brief. So it exists primarily to spread hope to OCD sufferers. Um, and to also spread awareness about OCD and specifically moral and religious forms of OCD. So it's certainly not meant as therapy, should not be taken as therapy. Um, And so for episode one, I hope our discussion can serve, um, yeah, as a basic introduction to OCD, what it is, which will, I think, serve as a good foundation for subsequent episodes um how you feeling good great yeah (laughs) so I was wondering um just for listeners if you can introduce yourself a little bit and tell us uh what you do sure um so I'm a registered psychotherapist in Ontario Canada I am in private practice I have been in private practice for almost four years now um And the things that interest me most in my practice are what happened for people at the intersection of mental health and religion. And that can be great. Uh, Religion can be an excellent source of strength and hope for people. And it can also be something that is a source of difficulty for a lot of people. And I'm interested in all those intersections. Um, I specialize in uh, particularly in religious trauma and in um, moral and religious OCD. I treat all forms of OCD, but um, moral and religious OCD is is a big subspecialty for me. I see a lot of it. Um, I was I was drawn to it partly because before I became a psychotherapist a few years ago, Uh, I did a a lot of study in in the field of religion, theology, cultural studies, things like that. I was very, very fascinated by everything to do with religion. Um, And when I became a psychotherapist, it just seemed to me that there were a lot of, um, there was a lot of need for 
people who could handle that dimension of people's experience. Not all therapists want to deal with religion or spirituality um, and are not comfortable necessarily with it. And I'm, I'm very, very comfortable and I enjoy working with people around those issues. Um, and there have been a lot of different things to deal with around there. Sometimes people come to me because they are thinking of leaving their religion or, or they're thinking of joining a different religion or they're trying to navigate a, a multi-faith relationship and they're not sure how to how to do that. Um, sometimes people are trying to recover from spiritual abuse or toxic religious upbringings. Um, so I deal with all those kinds of things and uh, I find it extremely rewarding to work on those things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's fascinating. Um, and thank you for for sharing. Um, yeah, so maybe we'll start with a very uh, basic question. Um, so to someone who perhaps has no familiarity or maybe just a little bit of familiarity with OCD, um, you know, maybe they've seen it portrayed in a movie or they've heard the term a long time ago. Um, how would you explain OCD to them? I would say um, <laughs> for anybody who's got a, a vague idea, I would say it's not what you think. And then I would tell them that hmm. OCD is a serious mental health condition um, that is characterized by obsessive thoughts and compulsive or ritualized behaviors. Um, it affects around two to three percent of the population. And we don't know for sure what causes it yet, but researchers um, believe that it's a combination of genetics, uh, brain abnormalities, and environmental factors. Um, but there's still a lot to to know and understand about that. Um, we usually see uh, the the onset of OCD in childhood, um, adolescence, or early adulthood, and it does appear to run in families. Um, and these obsessions that people have with this disorder. Um, which are unwanted and often deeply upsetting, even terrifying is not too strong a word to use. Um, these can be thoughts or images, um, sounds, uh, sensations, words, um, anything like that. And they are experienced as so distressing that a person resorts to these compulsions or ritualized behaviors to try to alleviate and dispel the fear and anxiety that these feelings provoke, that these experiences, these obsessive thoughts provoke. Um, and these compulsions seem to work at least temporarily, but in fact, they feed the OCD cycle and they ultimately make OCD worse. Um, I would also distinguish it for people from general anxiety, um, which lacks this compulsive dimension. And also from a disorder that has a, a confusingly similar name, which is obsessive compulsive personality disorder or OCPD. Mm. Um, and that is um, characterized by psychological rigidity and uh, an excessive preoccupation with perfection, control, order, um, rules, things like that. And so to make things even more confusing, a person can also have both OCD and OCPD <laughs> but they are distinct conditions and they do need um, different treatment approaches. And a person could also have OCD and generalized anxiety disorder. Um, OCD can be quite debilitating. Um, and especially if it's severe and goes untreated, which it often does for many people for many years, it's quite common for people to be um, misdiagnosed or um, have it under-recognized, under-treated and go decades without proper treatment. Um, 
At this time, there's no cure for OCD, but there is effective treatment. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that in this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for explaining it. Um, I was wondering, maybe what are some uh, examples, I guess, of what OCD is not, right? Because, and this is often said that, you know, in movies and stuff, it's portrayed as, you know, excessive hand washing and checking locks. And it's sort of reduced only to um, right. those kinds of things. Can you say a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. Um, the, the theme that, I mean, most OCD has a theme or a, a, a topic that it kind of revolves around. Um, and the one that people are most familiar with, most aware of is contamination OCD, which is, you know, the, the accompanying compulsion for that is often something like hand washing. It's hardly limited to that. There are a million substances that we can believe ourselves to be contaminated with and a ton of corresponding compulsions that one might do to, um, to deal with that. Um, but the, the, the classic one that almost everybody's heard of is contamination and hand washing. Um, mm. But um, OCD is so much more than that. And there can be themes can attach to almost anything. Like every day, I think I've heard of just about every theme under the sun. And then I learn about another one <laughs> that I've never heard of. Um, right. It's it's a very elastic and creative disorder. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Um, right. So I guess the next question would be, um, so what what does moral... OCD or religious uh, OCD look like, um, I guess, within that obsessive compulsive framework that you described. Right. So if I was trying to get somebody to understand moral and religious OCD, I would first make sure that they understood OCD according to what I just explained a couple of minutes ago. Um, and then, you know, I would emphasize that it's normal and common for OCD to have particular themes and obsessions that every that that it focuses on. Um, and people can have more than one theme at a time um, or throughout their lives. Um, sometimes themes come and go, they morph, they they might go dormant for a while and then come zooming back. They might be consistent throughout a lifetime. It's, it's very individual. Um, and one of the more common themes um, and probably one of the earliest known forms of OCD is religious and moral OCD. So that would be obsessions with religion, morality, ethics, um, and every topic that relates to these. And if you think about it, almost anything can be seen through a religious or a moral lens. So this kind of OCD can absorb a lot of concerns that might not seem religious on the face of it. Um, and I would add that a person doesn't have to be particularly religious to suffer from religious OCD. It's not necessarily or logically connected to one's actual beliefs, but it often is. And it isn't necessarily related to how devout a person is. A person could be quite devout and have mild OCD. A person could be barely religious and have quite severe religious OCD. So it, it doesn't really line up like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so it's it's sort of the same structure framework of OCD, but just in some ways applied to moral and religious matters. Right. The obsessions uh, focus on that content. Mm -hmm. Right. Interesting. So, yeah, you mentioned, um, I guess, and it's in the name itself, right? OCD, obsessive compulsive mm -hmm. disorder. Um, so it first starts with 
obsessions, right? Or intrusive mm-hmm. thoughts or things like that. Um, what would be some examples of someone with moral or religious OCD? What kind of obsessions would they have? Okay, let me talk about religious first and then moral separately, because it, it's a little easier to understand, I think, if I break them apart. So uh, religious obsessions, you can probably guess what some of the most common obsessions of religious OCD would be. These would be blasphemy, um, fear of hell and the afterlife, eternal suffering, um, and every kind of sin that you have ever heard of, and probably some sins either real or perceived uh, that you can't imagine. Mm. Um, There can also be obsessions about like the proper performance of rituals or saying prayers correctly or perfectly, wearing religious garments correctly or perfectly. Um, absolute adherence to laws around purity of behavior, food, sexual activity, things like that. Um, And these obsessions can be very religiously specific. Um, For instance, um, a Jewish or a Muslim person with religious OCD might have an obsession about avoiding pork, but it's less likely you'd see a Christian client with that obsession. However, it wouldn't be surprising to me at all to find a Christian client who had obsessional doubts about whether they too should be avoiding pork. Uh, I mean, why has God specified that some believers should reject it and not others? What if something's been lost in translations? Maybe they should also be following that law, right? This is the kind of obsessional doubt that can plague people with religious OCD. And in that way, that Christian might become obsessed about avoiding pork, even though it's not generally commanded for them. And their reasons for doing it would be different than a Jew or a Muslim. Um, and then moral OCD, um, the, comp- the the obsessions attached to virtually any law, rule, uh, ethical standard, uh, moral notion that you can think of. So some common moral obsessions would be, uh, did I cheat on that essay or exam? Was I unfaithful to my partner by, by talking to that person? Did I look at that person in a way that's like a harassing or inappropriate way? Um, did I think a racist thought? Did I lie to that person either accidentally or on purpose? What if I cheated on my taxes and I didn't realize it? Um, Did I exaggerate my experience on that resume to get a job? Did I, um, am I complying perfectly with the terms and conditions of that 26 page contract I signed? And for the last few years, one of the most common moral obsessions we see is the fear of getting canceled. Hmm. Yeah. Like being called out for something in the past. Yeah. And effectively shunned, right, from the community. Yeah. Hmm. So when when I think about those obsessions that you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, I guess in some sense, I think, well, you know, those are considerations of the religious and the moral ones that normal people would consider, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, did I cheat or did I do my taxes, right? And so there there is a sense where, people do engage with those questions, right? And reasonably mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what I'm understanding is that, I guess when it comes to moral and religious OCD obsessions, that it's beyond sort of the normal consideration, right? It's sort of dialed up a lot more than, say, the average person. Would you Would you sort of conceptualize it that way? Well, I think uh, the way I would look at it is that there is there is reasonable doubt that is based on 
actual evidence, uh, sensory evidence, the the real world, the 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 things that we can you know actually grasp. And there's obsessional doubt that's usually rooted in you know imagination. What if this could be true? What if I did? But maybe. But it could be. But you know, there's a lot of that kind of conditional language about what if maybe could be. Um, I mean, if you did say underreport your income on your taxes, you can look that up, do the math and ascertain, did I or did I not underreport my my um, my income? But a person with OCD about that is probably not going to be convinced by the evidence of their senses. That's the disorder, right? They're not going to they're going to look at the numbers. And even though they all add up and know they didn't underreport, they're going to have but maybe maybe there's some piece of paper I lost. Maybe I did the numbers wrong, I should do them again, and again, and again, that becomes the compulsion, right? Keep adding up the numbers, keep redoing this, the spreadsheet, keep checking, keep checking, keep checking, checking's a major uh, form of uh, of compulsion, right? Uh, start rooting through, you know, old returns, go back further, look for more pieces of paper, call old employers and ask for um, them to provide your, like, you can see it can just spiral and spiral and spiral because nothing satisfies the doubt because they aren't convinced by the evidence of their senses. Um, these compulsions just can run wild um, trying to prove something that is, um, some it's it's an obsessional doubt coming from their imagination in the first place mm -hmm. right that's a good way good way to put it um thank you so so yeah so it it begins i guess with these obsessions you know what if or did i and you know thinking back and stuff and then as you just mentioned so you feel um compelled in some way right to alleviate that right or mm -hmm. to find out or to go on a quest to see did I actually or is this okay mm -hmm. um so yeah I guess what are some of those common compulsions then um that people with moral and religious OCD engage in um to alleviate anxiety Sure. So I'll, I'll break it into religious and moral again, because the religious compulsions tend to have a dimension um, often of their own. Um, so uh, with religious OCD, um, a lot of the compulsions will involve turning uh, religious behaviors or rituals to extremes. So you'll see um, excessive praying, uh, compulsive religious confession, you know, going to confession 17 times a week or four times on Sunday or whatever, um, excessive fasting, uh, excessive scriptural study, repetitive purification and ablution rituals, um, trying to make deals with God. <laughs> These are all very, very common types of religious um, compulsions that are religious in nature that often connect to religious OCD. But then uh, you also see the kinds of compulsions that are are common to all OCD, which are um, things like mental review, uh, mental checking, rumination is a huge one, um, attempts at, at thought suppression or thought reversal or thought neutralization, um, counting, calculating, like I just described, um, researching and Googling, um, reassuring the self and seeking reassurance from others, um, compulsive avoidance, massive one, and, um, and self-punishment. Um, now, for moral OCD, um, all the ones I just mentioned would apply to moral OCD. Um, and so what does confessing look like if you have moral OCD and you don't have a religious practice through which you confess? That might look like writing to a professor and saying, oh, no, I think I, I think I cheated on this paper. I think I cheated on this exam. Can you tell me whether what I did was cheating or um, 
they might contact uh, the Canada Revenue Agency to see, you know, to say, I think I underreported my income by $10 five years ago. Um, and, you know, as opposed to going and talking to a priest. Mm. Yeah, so you kind of have the same compulsions just mm-hmm. without the religious framework. Right. They take yeah. a different form or a different shape, but the the impulse is very similar to, you know, to to express to the 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 sin or the 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 transgression or the failure or whatever it was, the mistake to someone and try to either rectify it or get it absolved somehow. Mm. Right. Interesting. Thank you for for sharing. Um sure. I was wondering, so you mentioned being in in private practice for four years Mm -hmm. um how how debilitating is this for a lot of people it can be quite debilitating i've i've seen clients who are um at various ends of ocd but i've seen some whose um scores on the standard um ocd assessment tool which is called the y box the Yale Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale. Um, scores are pretty high. Um, that, that it's a score out of 40, and I've certainly seen quite a number of people who are between 32 and 38. Um, it, it, life becomes unmanageable. They they can't work. They can't you know attend to the normal things that they do in their life, whether that's going to school or or to church or or to the mosque or whatever their practice is. They they are unable to have you know functional healthy relationships. Um, they often have a lot of concurrent symptoms and disorders. Um, some are nearly incapacitated. I've, I've had people who've, who've come to me just, just barely out of that state. Um, and it's, it's, it really is a very serious, I mean, people, this, this, this popular idea we have is that it's kind of a, a, it's about fussiness and, and, you know, um, being a little bit too fastidious about how clean your hands are or how straight your shelves are is a grave disservice to how serious this disorder is, how encompassing it can be and how debilitating it can be. It's so much more than this sort of jokey, comical kind of way that it's portrayed in popular media. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and yeah, I don't want to bring this up because I think we're sort of past this in some sense but uh during COVID um was that sort of very difficult for those who have more on religious OCD I think I can imagine an obsessive concern right to make sure you don't uh infect people with the virus and absolutely yeah absolutely there were definitely that I definitely have seen that in my practice um and I know from talking to other professionals that 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 resonated in different ways for for different people um especially I mean as I said not a lot of people have just one theme um mostly especially when we do a thoroughly a thorough assessment we find that there are other obsessions and compulsions that aren't maybe getting noticed as much they might not be as debilitating or as attention getting but when you do a thorough assessment it's pretty rare to find somebody who has like one single obsessive idea or thought there's usually more and so um and a, a a big signal event like the the onset of covid um can make that kind of flare up if they have kind of low level contamination ocd now there's this massive global event where everybody's concerned about 
transmission of illness and um and, the, and it did flare it up for some people, you know, um, other people finally felt vindicated. <laughs> they were like, see, see, all, all my fears are real. They're mm -hmm. true. Um, you know, there's, so it really, it so much depends on the person's unique and individual presentation of, you know, what their obsessions are, their fears, their anxieties. Uh, and while all OCD works much the same way, it shows up in people in deeply individual ways. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think before moving on to treatment, um, I don't want to mention one thing or maybe ask you one more thing. Um, I guess, you know, I've heard it called OCD been called the silent illness or silent mm. disorder because uh, there's so many times where it's sort of left untreated. Um, you know, some OCD sufferers may not know that they have OCD, that there's, you know, a name for what they have. Mm -hmm. And this is just my opinion, but I think that's particularly the case in moral and religious settings, right? Because, um, yeah, and, and with, you know, within a religious framework, there is a concern, right, to be a good person, to live out values, standards, or God's law, or whatever mm -hmm. we want to call it. Um and so being concerned about that and doing the right thing um, can be celebrated, right? Is celebrated and it is something encouraged. It is something um, that's part of religions, right? Like you mentioned, things like confession and stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I can you can obviously see, I guess, how it can go untreated, right? Because it's encouraged in certain contexts and environments, Um just wondering, so you mentioned two to three percent um, of the population struggles with OCD. Um, do you think maybe that's higher um, given the potential uh, cases of it being left untreated, especially in moral and religious environments? That That's actually a very good question. My, I mean, <sighs> a person's view can get skewed by what they spend all their time with. I spend most of my time thinking about OCD and treating OCD and whatever. So um, is it more than two to 3%? I tend to think so, partly because there is such long lags between it being, you know, identified, treated, recognized and all that. Um, partly because I think in some contexts, it would, it would fly under the radar. Like, if you're in healthcare and you wash your hands more than average, you're you're probably not going to get noticed for it. Um, and likewise, like you pointed out, in in moral and religious environments, like let's take a religious environment, you know, caring about what kind of person you are, caring about ethical behavior, caring about sin and transgression, and doing things to avoid or expiate those those experiences. Um, that's normal. That is like normal for a religious context. It and and a lot of the behavior you know confession prayer scriptural study whatever these are also normal religious activities religious rituals mm -hmm. however um and this is where it gets missed is excess in those respects is that devotion or is it compulsion right and it's pretty hard for maybe the untrained viewer to accurately assess that um you know somebody a family full of people who, you know, go to church every Sunday and 
maybe read the Bible on Wednesday nights and they try to be good people, whatever, but they have one kid who's, you know, praying morning, noon, and night and reading the Bible every day. And, um, and they have a lot of anxiety, um, but they're not putting it together. They just think that kid's more religious, right? They think that kid's, you know, maybe that kid's going to be a priest or a pastor or something like that. They don't necessarily connect the anxiety to the, you know, the compulsive behavior, the excessive religious activity um, in, a, in a way that, I mean, sometimes it can take years to really work it out. I've, I've seen that, um, you know, and, and and nobody's saying any, like nobody's saying, oh, you shouldn't be devout. You shouldn't, you know, read the, I mean, if you're doing it because you want to, great. If you're doing it because you're in a, in a state of terror and trying to manage that state of terror, that's a different thing. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. And I was reading this book uh, a couple months ago called Clean Hands, Philosophical Lessons from Scrupulosity. Oh, okay. Um, I don't with, know that one. Yeah. So I, the authors sort of investigate um, more on religious OCD uh, through a philosophical lens. And I think one of the chapters, they're trying to differentiate exactly that between uh, a moral saint or someone who's, uh, you know, a morally good person versus um, someone with with scrupulosity. And I believe something that they mention, or this is maybe my my own conjuring up of memories, is that from the outside, they can look exactly the same, right? Someone with mm -hmm. uh, high moral standards mm -hmm. um, can donate a lot to charity because they feel um, you know, it's a way to help people in need, right? Help people mm -hmm. in poverty. And so, but someone with scrupulosity can donate the same amount of money. Um, but the motivation, the impetus behind the action is not, uh, perhaps solely to help people, but to alleviate an anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. Because, mm -hmm. um, I have to be a good person or because I did this other thing. So I got to make up for it or, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and and I think that's so externally it sort of it looks the same to people donating to a charity X amount of money they're a good person but what lies behind uh, the motivation right what's the motivation what's driving them right yeah and and that's what isn't so obvious to the even maybe an intimate family member they might not be questioning it or thinking about it the way a clinician would and say well you know, look at this person, they've got a lot of anxiety, there seems to be a number of behaviors that are, are driven by that, as opposed to whatever other, you know, motives a person might have, and and start to put together that this person is probably doing this um, out of fear and anxiety. Right. Yeah. Okay, so in terms of treatment, um, how is OCD treated how is moral and religious forms of ocd treated typically so okay there's going to be a lot of alphabet soup in the next part of what i say a lot of <laughs> a lot of short forms and stuff but um there are a lot of treatments on offer for ocd um some of which don't really have much evidence basis yet but the primary evidence-based scientifically supported options are psychotherapy medication or a combination of the two um, now, medication by itself, in and of itself, is not considered a treatment for OCD, but it can help dial down the overall level of anxiety, and that can be helpful for sure, just generally speaking, but also it can make it easier 
to engage in uh, therapeutic treatment. Um, uh, the first line of pharmaceutical treatment for OCD uh, currently is SSRIs, um, but there are some other options as well. Um, most of the treatments, the psychotherapy treatments that treat OCD effectively uh, fall under the very large umbrella of CBT or cognitive behavioral therapies. And the most researched and evidence-based of those is ERP, which stands for Exposure and Response Prevention Therapy. And there are several variations on this approach. The traditional approach of ERP is it's a structured treatment protocol um, during which the person with OCD is um, deliberately exposed to feared stimuli uh, to, to provoke their anxiety and then at the same time prevented from the performance of any compulsions. And in that way, uh, they gradually learn that they can cope with anxiety, uh, distress, um, and uncertainty without resorting to compulsions. And that, that's a fairly simplified explanation. Um, and I and I will say right off the bat, ERP is not easy, um, but it is currently the gold standard of treatment for, for OCD. Um, and this kind of ERP is one of the two primary approaches I offer in my practice. The other one is called inference-based CBT or ICBT. And it was actually developed here in Canada by uh, Dr. Frederick Artema and the late Dr. Kieran O'Connor. Um, and this approach, um, is targeted further upstream in the OCD cycle than ERP is. Um, and it focuses on identifying the reasoning errors that lead to obsessional doubt. Um, and it doesn't involve exposures. Um, and then there are some other um, therapies that kind of fall under CBT uh, that work for OCD, which are metacognitive therapy, uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and rumination-focused ERP. And then there's also options such as ACT, which stands for Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Mm -hmm. And that emphasizes um, psychological flexibility, living a values-based life, and um, acceptance of uncertainty, practicing acceptance of uncertainty. And I do hear of people getting good results for OCD with ACT. It's, it's not an approach I'm currently trained in, so um, I can't really go into that in much more detail. Um, but it's important to know that no treatment works 100% of the time for 100% of clients, and many clients might need more than one treatment approach to achieve um, the maximum possible recovery. Um, all of these approaches uh, can work and can be applied to um, uh, religious and moral OCD, um, but you might need to do considerable uh, tailoring or refining in, in many cases. Um, and uh, it can be challenging to develop religiously sensitive exposures, especially I find. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And that's certainly a wide array of <laughs> yeah. different approaches. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, maybe we can, uh, if we can break down ERP with an example, um, if you're up for that. Sure. So maybe we'll start with an example of the obsessive compulsive cycle just normally right so right let's say um or what what's an example of an obsession okay so an obsession might be um let me think uh, a person is um is really triggered by any anything that's associated with uh, Satan. So images of the devil, the number 666, um, even right. just seeing like page 666 in a book or, or seeing 666 on an odometer can be very triggering. Anything that um, triggers thoughts of hell or Satan, that that's that's a very common one. Or obsession. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 
so let's not, I guess, talk about ERP yet. Um, so say, yeah, someone has obsessions about uh, Satan or anything related to the devil. Um, what would be the compulsion, assuming sort of OCD takes its natural cycle? Um, a very strong likelihood is is like um, compulsive avoidance, trying not to um, encounter that number. I've heard of people, um, they're, they, they're like buying something and they they see that the the subtotal has 666 in it so they will like put something back or buy something extra to change it to make sure that isn't printed on their receipt that's right. avoidance right um you know they will um they will be upset if um if their dry cleaner tag has 666 on it and ask for a different one or um they will rip that page out of a book if they if they really are bothered by it i don't know what they do with bibles cuz bibles have a page 666 but um mm -hmm the um you know there's yeah it could be it, there's like you just try to avoid the number or yeah. you might cross it out in like if like scribble it out on the page in a book so you don't have to see it um there might be compulsions like saying a prayer when you encounter it or or you pass a, a highway sign that says 666 miles to oklahoma or whatever and you um might say a, a prayer or a or a, a a mantra that you have to kind of reverse whatever thoughts come into your mind you're you're thinking of satan so you talk about god or you you ask for forgiveness it, it, it's sure. like an endless array of potential compulsions yeah yeah got it okay so so then for someone with that obsession and those compulsions um how would you introduce erp so you know, let's say that's one of the, with, with ERP, you're creating um, an exposure hierarchy. So you're talking to the client about all the things that are obsessional issues um, and then, you know, trying to rank them according to the subjective units of distress that that causes or discomfort that that causes for them. So you, you end up with a list where there's the lowest one, the, the least troubling or distressing item. And then at the top is the, is the most upsetting and, and, distressing option that could possibly happen um and you start at the beginning you start low obviously um and you begin um creating exposures this is done in collaboration with the client um you know what what would be a manageable thing here so for the 666 thing maybe um we practice having them write 666 on a piece of paper or if they can't do that maybe just the, the number six like some sometimes you have to really really dial back the exposures mm -hmm. maybe it will be writing the letters s i x rather than the number can they do that right can mm -hmm. they sit with that anxiety without resorting to compulsions you, you have to be very very creative and flexible as an erp therapist um, to come up with effective exposures that that do the job but don't take the client too far and that allow you to build on um, their increasing success toward greater and greater tolerance of these um, triggering um, and obsessive items. Right. So you expose yourself intentionally, deliberately mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. the fear, right? Mm -hmm. And that's yep. something I think the other day we were talking about just, it's a counterintuitive thing right yes, because yes. if you're scared of something of course mm -hmm. you, the natural yes. thing would be to run away absolutely to avoid. absolutely okay. so you're and, yeah go ahead it, well yeah and and so this is i mean this is one of the reasons the ARP is tough is because it does force people to confront or you know encourage 
nobody's forced or they don't want to do it, they don't have to do it. Um, but it does, it does ask people to um, confront the feared stimuli, whatever that is, and then tolerate the anxiety until it comes down by at least 50% and not do compulsions and thereby learn that the compulsions don't actually keep them safe, that anxiety isn't actually dangerous and that they can cope with these, you know, um, feared situations, words, thoughts, whatever, um, without resorting to compulsions. Right. Got it. Yeah. So exposure, um, to the fear. And then, so would the response prevention piece be not engaging in those compulsions? So in this case, you know, not saying a prayer when you right. see 666 or, right. uh, you know, not avoiding it, I guess, not running away. Right. It's tricky because there are the the compulsions that a that a therapist or an outsider can observe. Do they wash their hands? Do they cover their eyes? Do they do they say a prayer out loud? But how do you sort of track whether they're doing the mental compulsions that you can't really see or observe, right? And some of that is just based on checking in with the client. You know, are you are you doing thought suppression in your head? Are you saying a prayer in your head, kind of thing, and hoping that they're honest about it. Um, they're not going to get well if they're not, right? So for the most part, they are honest about whether or not they're they're doing mental compulsions that you can't see. Um, but you also have to not just avoid them during the exposure itself, but like don't go later. Like, you know, if you do an exposure at three in the afternoon at your therapist, and, and what you're telling yourself when you do it is, I will make up for this later. I'll do 10 more prayers tonight instead of just five. And I will read the Bible for six hours. And like, so I will, you know, I, I'm sorry, God, that I have to do this, but I'll make it up to you later. Like that is not an effective exposure. Um, if you're doing the compulsions later, if you're just kind of, you know, saying, I'll pay this bill later, right? This compulsion bill later. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, my, I, I was in um, a, a 12-week consultation group with an ERP specialist uh, back in the fall. And she says, if you're doing those exposures and then you're later going and doing compulsions to make up for it, you might as well not bother because you're kind of just sensitizing yourself further to the obsessional trigger, right? Um, you, you've got to prevent the 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 compulsions, the responses, the rituals. It, 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 there's no point otherwise. Just doing exposures will not fix the situation. The, the responses have to be prevented. The compulsions are the problem, right? The compulsions are what life feel the most unmanageable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just got a notification that my internet might be a little unstable. So hopefully okay. the audio has remained intact. Um, okay. <laughs> um, but I, I did catch most of what you said. Um, yeah, so I think if there's one buzzword um, that we can sort of categorize within OCD um, is this idea of of uncertainty and tolerating uncertainty. I was wondering if um, you can say a little bit about that. So how does this idea of of assurance and seeking certainty and tolerating uncertainty, how does that fit in within OCD? Right. So one thing I've noticed the longer I study OCD is that how we treat it depends on how we conceptualize it. So the conceptualization of OCD for ERP is quite different in some ways from how it's conceptualized in the other approach I use, which is ICBT. So, you know, classical exposure um, kind of assumes that there are things that 
can't be ascertained um, no matter what. Um, and I mean, largely I agree with that. We, we can't know if a meteor is going to hit our house tomorrow. We can't know, I believe, um, whether or not there's a hell or a heaven. Or, I mean, you can believe something, but I don't think you can know it in what I would consider like the philosophical meaning of the word no. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of things either have to be taken on faith or accepted as not knowable. Um, and ERP for, um, you know, something like contamination is you, you look at your hands, they're clean, you've washed them according to the rules of washing hands or whatever, you still feel they're dirty. Um, to some extent, it's about tolerating the the possibility that there's like some teeny tiny, wee little invisible, unperceivable microbe on your hands that could mm -hmm. cause illness. Um, and probably not, but tolerating that possibility, tolerating the possibility that uh, you might harm somebody, even though you probably won't, and you never have, and you don't really want to, but, um, you know, tolerating the possibility uh, and just like learning to manage that level of anxiety without letting it go hog wild or whatever. Um, ICBT says there's, there are two kinds of things. There's uncertainty and there's doubt. And uncertainty is about something that you can actually ascertain, like, is it going to, is it raining right now? You can look out the window and say, yes, it is raining or no, it isn't, or, or maybe a little bit, uh, you know, but you can, it's a question that can be answered. Um, and did I pass the exam? Well, look up your marks, see if you passed, right? If they're not out yet, you have to wait, but it's something you're going to be able to know. Um, you know, does my um, father have um, diabetes? you know, again, you can get a test, you can find out, um, is my foot broken, get an exam, find out. Um, doubt, obsessional doubt, uh, according to ICBT is always um, something that can't be resolved, because it's an imaginary problem. It's, I mean, in the world of anything's possible, which is OCD's favorite place, OCD lives in it's possible, anything's possible. Mm -hmm. um, you, you can't, you can't resolve imaginary problems with real world techniques or real world behavior or real world actions, but that's what it, that's what it is in I, in ICBT, you're trying to resolve an obsessional imaginary doubt with real world actions of compulsions, right? And it's not possible to do that. So you have to break down the reasoning process that leads a person to have obsessional doubts based in the world of imagination. So maybe that's a bit too roundabout an answer, but really um, how you conceive of what's happening with OCD does determine the treatment and the target of treatment. Um, you know, act, 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 emphasize, you know, acceptance and com commitment therapy emphasizes ex practicing living with uncertainty as well. Um, more as I think I'm probably going to get out of my depth here talking about this because I'm not trained in act, but more as a, as a, just an orientation toward the world. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know, was that helpful? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. And <laughs> I studied philosophy a lot. So if there's one thing I learned is that um, as you're mentioning, there are very, very few beliefs that we can know with mm -hmm. absolute certainty, mm -hmm. right? Like maybe just a handful, but everything else in some ways is um, possible to doubt. Right. Um mm -hmm. 
and so that's yeah in some ways why i mentioned last time i think ocd is a very deeply philosophical disorder right because it plays mm -hmm. on on those themes um yep and it it tends to show up in people who have you know actually very strong minds i i, I hear from people with OCD that they often feel like they are weak-minded because they're so beaten down by the OCD, but um, usually they are are thinkers, maybe overthinkers, but they are analytical, thoughtful, um, intelligent people on, on, on the whole. That's, that's my experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Deborah, I was wondering, are there approaches to treatment that uh, perhaps are not helpful for treating OCD or uh, perhaps even harmful? Yes, I'm so glad you asked because this is something I do think is really important to talk about. Um, it, it is not helped. OCD is not helped by traditional talk therapy. And unfortunately, that is the type of therapy that most people, many people at least, end up in uh, unless they've had OCD recognized, um, properly diagnosed, and then they are able to access treatment with someone who specializes in treatments for OCD. Um, traditional talk therapy is really likely to make OCD worse um, because it ends up feeding OCD's need for reassurance and accommodations. And um, it's pretty typical for therapists to be drawn into co-compulsing with a client like that if they don't know if they don't understand how OCD works or what they should or shouldn't be doing. Um, and, you know, if the person um, gets some relief, which they probably will, I can see why they would stay in it. But just like every other compulsion, it isn't going to last mm -hmm. and it isn't going to help change the situation. Um, and if a person, you know, has other issues that are helped by talk therapy, I, I'm all for them getting that support there. I'm not saying they shouldn't access it for their other issues, but it's pretty hard to compartmentalize OCD, like right out of the talk therapy experience. Um, you know, I'd love to see every um, every person with OCD get appropriate treatment. I, I do understand that those resources aren't there. Um, the other thing I really want to caution people about, and this goes right to the heart of religious OCD, is against seeking purely religious solutions for a mental health disorder. Um, it is really common. In fact, I haven't seen an exception yet um, for people with OCD to interpret their symptoms as some kind of spiritual disorder or a lack of faith or they've been cursed or they're out of favor with God or they are possessed by demons like that is not a, an, an extreme example that's pretty common actually for people to think that um, mm. and seeking religious remedies for a mental health condition um, is not only generally problematic but in the case of religious OCD it's just about guaranteed to reinforce obsessional ideation and promote compulsions um and here's the thing it's it's not the case across the board that clergy have proper training about how to support people with ocd um, i do think the situation is getting better um, but a lot of clergy will interpret mental health issues as spiritual disorder and treat them accordingly and in many cases i am aware of people with religious ocd who have um, unfortunately experienced additional um, guilt shame, fear, and anxiety as a result of sharing their OCD with their clergy. And in some in extreme cases, I know that they have undergone um, rituals to um, expel demonic forces or evil spirits, okay? Um, now, 
having said that, I do want to also acknowledge that there are clergy who are well-informed about OCD and they can be a great asset in the therapeutic process. Therapists who treat religious OCD often do um, work productively with clergy um, to, for instance, create acceptable, religiously acceptable exposures, um, even when it's necessary to go right up to the boundaries of what's acceptable to get uh, the therapeutic effect. Um, and clergy are so helpful because they can use their religious authority and credibility to validate that OCD is a mental health condition that needs therapeutic treatment. Um, so I, I really, really value any clergy who understand OCD. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so they do certainly have a role, right? So religious authorities have a role and can play a very helpful role. Um, it's just a matter of uh, determining, yeah, what the most helpful thing would be, right, for the person with OCD. Absolutely. Um, yeah, well, thank you so much. Um, I've learned a lot <laughs> through this discussion. Um, I was wondering, um, to someone who may be struggling with OCD now, whether it's, you know, moral religious OCD or other forms, uh, or someone who thinks some of these things I have, right? Like, do I, do I have that? What words of hope would you, would you give to them? I would say that, um, while OCD is a serious and genuinely challenging disorder to have there is no better time in the history of the world than right now to be trying to recover from it because um, that's unquestionable um, because we have more knowledge more understanding more options more resources and more hope to offer people than ever before i think it's really important to stress that um, there is effective treatment and there are a range of evidence-based options to choose from there are a number of medications that can help with OCD and at least decrease the overall anxiety that sufferers experience. And there is a huge and ever-growing number of resources available online and in books and so forth that can provide information, guidance, and support. There's ongoing research into the causes of OCD and into better treatment options. And there's also increasing advocacy overall, um, which adds to the awareness and understanding of the general public about this completely misunderstood disorder. Um, so I feel like I see lots of reasons for hope. Um, now, the downside for the person struggling is that access to needed and specialized resources, like the doctors, the therapists, um, the medications, uh, residential treatment options, um, support for concurrent disorders, um, is largely or entirely out of the reach of most people suffering with OCD. Um, and unfortunately, this disorder is no exception to the critical shortage of mental health resources in most places in the world, even very rich countries. Um, so the primary option for people who can't afford specialized treatment is um, to turn to the many self-help um, materials that are available, um, books and workbooks, um, videos, websites, podcasts like this one, um, group therapy options, so forth, um, that kind of thing. Um, and there are practitioners and agencies that offer low cost or even free uh, support groups and other forms of help. Um, I know that it can be hard to find those. So I, yeah, Enzo, if you want, after the show, I can, I would be happy to give you some links for the show notes page to help listeners get started on finding those, those options. Absolutely. Yes, that would be 
very, um, very helpful. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate, you know, the idea that uh, there's a lot of people who may want to uh, get OCD specific therapy and treatment. Um, but there is a variety of barriers, right? Financial barriers being um, a big one, perhaps the big one. Um, and so that that's good to know. And I think something that I think we'll return to in, in later episodes, um, maybe we can have another discussion on exactly that, right? How can we uh, try, even if it's a bit to make um, OCD therapy more accessible um, to those who, who can't receive it, um, given their circumstances. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, I would love to talk about that. That would be, that would be a good episode, I think. Yeah, especially in Ontario, right? Because it's also, um, you know, very depending on, on where you live and your context. Mm -hmm. But I think here, um, OHIP, which is um, the medical coverage that we get in the province, um, I believe does not uh, cover psychotherapy, right? No. And so, not in most cases. Not there, in there most are, cases. Yeah, I mean, there are there are there is some access to psychotherapists through family health team program and stuff like that. But uh, you know, OCD treatment is also it's not eight sessions, right? It's not like eight sessions and you're good to go. Um, it usually is, you know, at least more than a dozen. Um, probably, I mean, a classical ERP is conceived of as seventeen to twenty five. I think 90 minute sessions, that's a fair bit. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I have to work within greater constraints than that with most clients. Um, ICBT is 12 modules, but you also have to allow time for um, assessment and psychoeducation, you know, practice, working on relapse, things like that. It's, it's not eight sessions and you're done. So yeah, it's, it's a real challenge. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Deborah. Is there anything you'd like to say by way of conclusion? I think this has been a very fruitful discussion. Um, thank you. Yes, I I want to say to people, um, don't give up. Please don't accept that life can't be any better. Um, don't believe that you are beyond help. Um, recovery is hard work, but it is possible. Um, I hope I live to see a cure for OCD, um, but in the meantime, I'm doing everything in my power to help offer recovery. Um, I'm grateful that you're doing this podcast, Enzo, because OCD is so poorly understood and we need effort on all fronts to change that. So thank you for taking this on. Um, and if listeners have further questions or comments, they can reach me through my website at sanctuarypsychotherapy.ca. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, and I think by way of conclusion, I'll say to the listeners that for your sake and mine, please be good to yourselves. Until next time. Bye, Deborah. Bye. Bye.